If you were here um, last week, and uh, many of you were, we, we talked a little bit about what, what we actually keep um, these two separate campuses kind of on the same page. How, how will God keep us walking in the same direction, though we may be on two different paths? And we, we talked about the importance of a common vision statement for that. Uh, we talked about our vision statement from John chapter 15, 8, uh, and these three words which encapsulate it for us. John 15, 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Our vision statement is passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. That'll be, that'll be abiding disciples. We long to live or desire to live fruitful lives, so God is seen for who he really is. And it's a great statement, and yes, I do believe it'll keep us both on the same track, albeit different different paths. But, but beyond that, what does 2018 look like? Now, we, we might kind of feel like, well, at the Hurstbridge campus, I think our hearts are one. We want it to go well, don't we? We love them, we bless them, and, and we hope that that little fellowship out there can grow and have a significant impact for the kingdom of God out in, in that area. But that's going to take a bit of support. They're going to need something from us. What is it that they're going to need most? And what about back here at Eltham? We continue to desire to grow and to touch people who are yet to experience the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have some challenges before us here as well. We have growing ministries and, and we still, regardless of the fact that there's a few extra empty seats now, we still have a hurting world which we're hoping to reach so that they will fill the seats again. And regardless of that, we still have pressure on all of our facilities. As the kids go out, uh, we have four rooms instead of six, which would be optimum. Um, throughout the week, we're constantly rearranging furniture to cater for this ministry and that. And so we continue to press on with this, this desire, this sense or hunch we have from the Lord to, to rebuild. But at the same time, as anyone on the property development group will tell you, well, that's not as simple as it looks. And, and please continue to pray for that wonderful group of people who meet and are seeking the Lord. But, but I think in that regard, we need to see some Jericho walls fall down. I think this year we need to be a people in prayer. I think it's been fabulous to have that property development group do their due diligence and work as hard as they can within the laws of the land to try and find a way forward. And they're getting there. However, we need some Jericho walls to fall down. Why would God do that? Why wouldn't he just pave the way clear? Same as with Joshua and his armies. The idea was that, was that they would reach out to him, that they would know that only God has done this, that they would cry out to him and, and be dependent upon him and grow in faith as a nation, the most important thing for them. It wasn't just to occupy the land, but it was for God to occupy them. It wasn't that they would be a presence in that area of the world. It was so they could experience the presence of God in their midst. As a community, I would say that's the objective here as well. It's not to build a building, but for God to build us in, in faith. But how do we go about that? And what does, what does that look like? So I want to talk a little bit about that. And, and um, we're going to kind of, we won't quite kick it off here, but we're going to start a new, a new series. And I know we've got about 27 unfinished ones. And you're wondering, which one are we going to go back to? Well, I, so confusing. I thought we'd just start another one. Um, so what's our highest priority? We might say, well, that's a vision statement, right? Our highest priority is to abide because that will lead to a fruitful life and bring God glory. Absolutely. 
But let me just add to that a little bit this morning as we sort of launch this new focus. And, and the Hurstbridge campus will be doing exactly the same focus. Not this morning, but as of next week, we'll be working through exactly the, the same passages. But the word authenticity comes to mind. The authentic Christian life. Authentic Christian living. And that's what we want to talk a little bit about today. Um, when I think about that, I think of a verse 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to abide in him, now that's the, that's the aim, isn't it? This is John reflecting in one of his later letters. Whoever claims to abide in him must walk as Jesus walked. We want to have a little bit of a look through the Gospel of Mark, actually. Exactly how did Jesus walk? What was the walk of Jesus like? If we were to walk as Jesus walked, let's have a little bit of a look, a look at that. The aim here is to, and I don't, don't know if you've had a chance to, to read my, my latest blog, but it has to do with this Jesus walk, our identity in him. And, and there's a little line I use right at the end of it, which is a little bit of a goal in my life as well, and I trust that we can, we can all share this goal. And that is, I want to learn to walk on earth as I am known in heaven. If you want to pray for me, pray that prayer. That Stuart will learn to walk on earth as he is known in heaven. I'll make that my prayer for you as well. And so as we explore this theme, well, let's look at the most perfect walk that anyone has ever walked before. The life of Jesus. Let's have a little bit of a glimpse in the Gospel of Mark as, as Mark slash Peter, most likely, are starting to unfold and write this Gospel to reveal this, the answer to this question, who is this Jesus and how did he walk and what did that look like? Because without a doubt, you could say this, Jesus knew who he was. When he asks that famous question, who do you say I am? There was no doubt in his mind he knew who he was. <laughs> he knew who he was in heaven. And it reflected, was reflected in his daily walk. So we're going to have a little bit of a, a look at this. Um, in 2016, in France, some people moved into a house and discovered up in the attic this, this rolled up canvas. And as they, they unrolled it, Carefully, they knew it was old. Um, they unrolled it very, very carefully. It was very, very dusty, but but it looked like a very, very old painting. So they they took it to an art dealer and started to query, "What do you think? What do you think it is?" And and apparently it was a um, a Caravaggio. Well, that was the thought. Famous painter, and uh, in fact, they didn't. It had never been. They didn't even know it existed. So there's a lot of queries as to, is it authentic or not? Is it really a Caravaggio? Is, it, is this the real deal or not? And, and, um, and various people were, you know, kind of weighing in on the argument. Yes, it is. No, it's not. But if it was, if it was authenticated, if it was verified, the sense was that this painting would be worth around 120 million euro. Suddenly... This old canvas in the attic, it would probably pay off the house, wouldn't it? This old canvas in the attic that they had found was worth potentially 120 million euro. So imagine the, the finders of this. 
Um, in fact, it was not allowed to be sold or leave the country of France for three years because they wanted to actually authenticate it. And now we're getting all sorts of experts to do it. I believe now it actually has been verified and it is, it is what they thought it was. But imagine for a moment that that was you. Imagine you found a classic old painting in the attic. First impressions were that this thing could be very, very valuable. In excess of 200 million Australian dollars. I mean, you'd possibly eat out that night, wouldn't you? Just in anticipation. You'd probably not even go to Macca's. You'd probably go to KFC. I mean, imagine the excitement. Imagine if it was verified. Imagine if you got a certificate of authentic, that authenticated that this, this is what everybody thinks it is. This is its true value. Would you take that painting and say, oh, wow, wow, and go and pop it back in the attic? And then just go on with your life? Or would you say this this had a hidden, now revealed value. It's been entrusted to me by God, and I'll probably don't know if I'd keep it. I like paintings, but don't know if I like them that much. Perhaps I have been entrusted with much here, and there's something that God wants me to do with it. Your life is of far greater value than a dusty old painting in an attic. And the question I guess we're asking here is, do you believe about yourself all that God believes about you? Do you believe about yourself all that God believes about you? Because in his son, Jesus Christ, he has authenticated a value on your life, which is far greater, as I say, than a dusty old canvas in an attic. The question is, do you believe it? And if you do believe it, what do you do with that? Do you believe that you have stumbled upon perhaps the greatest thing in all the world? That God has entrusted you with, with a high, high value? This is something to be stewarded very carefully. That's what we want to explore. That's what Jesus knew. He knew who he was and he walked the walk. If we knew who we were, I am sure we would walk differently. Not the slouch, but I think we would just puff up a little bit. We would come out the front. We would be bold. We would, hello, sweetheart. <laughs> we would have no trouble knowing our place in the world and how God wants to use us. Let's explore these verses a little bit more. I want to or just go through a very, very interesting verse here. Um, first, or, or a couple of verses. First John 2, 3, 5. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Now, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone who obeys his word, uh, sorry, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. That's actually the, um, I believe the NIV, not the Berean. The next verse is. So I apologize for that. These few verses are firstly asking this question. 
Now, obviously, when John was writing, there were people within the church who claimed to be Christian for whatever reason, but they weren't being kind, loving towards one another. They weren't really walking as Jesus walked. So John raises this question. How do you really know? How do you really know? And now, some of you, new to the faith and so forth, have struggled with this. Um, assurance of salvation. Am I saved? Am I a Christian? How do I really know? John is answering that question here. This is how we know. This is how we know. We know that we have come to know him. He starts out. And then he says, well, if we keep his commands. Now, I'm going to pause here because this is a little bit of a confusing part, and you'll have to think with me here. Taken at a surface level, you're going to look at that and feel a little bit like, well, that's kind of meritorious, isn't it? I know him if I keep his commands. Where does this actually, where does this actually roll out in terms of legalism and religiosity and that sort of thing, that if I keep his commands, then I am a Christian. I know, I know Christ. How does this all work? And, and honestly, this has been a stumbling block for, for many Christians throughout the ages. But I want to point you actually down to 5A here. So we're answering the question, well, how do you know that, you know, you really know me? How do you know that you're an authentic Christian? How do you know that you really are in relationship with me by keeping his commands? But note this, whoever says, I know him, does not know him, is, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. As we obey God's word, think about this for a moment. You are demonstrating that you truly have a love for God, that God's love in you, enabling you to love him in return, it's made complete in you. Some, some versions, some translations, is perfected in you. The person who obeys God, that obedience, that life of obedience is a demonstration. It's a sign. It's an indicator that truly love for God is in you. And so what John is saying here is essentially that God's precepts, his statutes, his law, his commands, God's precepts now become promises. One of the ways that you know that you do know God, that you're in relationship with God, is this. It's impossible to obey his commands consistently unless you really are in relationship with him. It's impossible to do that. It's impossible to follow his precepts, to obey his commands, to follow his law, to live that kind of a life, unless you really have a heart for him. That's what John's saying here. The fact that you do, that demonstrates. And maybe not perfectly. John's just addressed that in chapter 1. But that demonstrates you have a heart for God, and slowly his love is being perfected within you. That's essentially what, what John is, is saying here. The precepts become promises. His purposes for your life now become like a prophetic utterance spoken over you. Charles Price, many, many years ago, used this illustration. I think it's a ripper. Uh, a criminal who had uh, just been released from jail for theft. Um, he'd served his time. He'd become a believer in prison. He was a new creation. He was free. And he happened one day to be walking down the street right outside the very courthouse where some time ago he was convicted of certain charges and, and sentenced. 
And as he walked past that courthouse, of course it caught his attention. Well, now he was a free man, but he couldn't help but think back to when he was led in chains into that, into that very, very courthouse where he was, he was convicted and sentenced. And, and he stopped outside and he was just pondering the outside of the courthouse where the Ten Commandments were written. And something dawned upon him that he had never seen ever before. He started to read the Ten Commandments. You know, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. And suddenly it's, it's like the shells were italicized. They, it's like they changed before his very eyes. And what was a command, you shall not, an imperative, all of a sudden became a promise. He read it differently. You shall not. You shall not. You shall not. Because of the change that had taken place in his heart. It was no longer a command to fulfill, a requirement. It was a promise. You will fulfill this now because you're born again. You will fulfill this now because you're my child. You will fulfill this now because my spirit actually dwells within you. Um, John is essentially saying here, how do you know that you really know God and have a new nature? Well, you will obey his commands. Because the person who obeys God's commands, that person could only do it one way. You'd have to be a new person, wouldn't you? You'd have to have a whole new nature. Um, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, was given that one wish. What would you like? A Maserati, he said. Ah, different version. No, he said wisdom. I would like wisdom. I would, I would like to be wise so that I may just rule, or rule justly as a king. Straight after that, 1 Kings 3, uh, he's confronted with this with this strange situation. Um, two prostitutes live in the same house, both pregnant. One has a baby three days later, the other has a baby. One day, um, the one who had the baby first wakes up and the baby's dead. But on closer inspection, she realizes this is not my baby. And suddenly she, she starts to work something out that, that the other prostitute living in the same house has, has her baby. She's rolled over onto that baby during the night. And, and so this situation is it's kind of creates an uproar. It's brought before Solomon. And, and now, like a test of his wisdom, they're both saying, it's my baby, you know, and so forth. And he has to sort it out. So he says, bring me a sword. A sword is brought to him. And he said, I know the answer. We'll cut the baby in two. Both can have half each. Now, one woman, of course, says, great idea. If I'm not going to get the baby, nobody gets the baby. The real mother, as only a real mother could, says, of course, no, 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 you must not do that. Do not do that. Give, let her have the baby. And in that moment, she, of course, identifies herself as the real mother. And Solomon, of course, gives the baby to her. The woman who wanted what was best for the child, that woman was the child's mother. The person who wants what is best for God, that person is God's child. This is essentially what, what John is saying. When you want what God wants, it's a demonstration that you are his child. It's a demonstration that you have a new nature. This is how you know that you 
belong to God. And then, of course, the verse that we were looking at before comes along. And the next verse, oh, lost my clicker. With it? Oh, I actually underlined all this for you really cleverly. I forgot. All right. Uh, but anyway, but if it, uh, love for God is truly made in them. Okay, here's our next verse, 5b. So this is now answering the question, well, how do you know? By this we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to abide in him must walk as Jesus walked. Actually, underline that as well, just to make the PowerPoint complete. This is how we know that we are abiding in him. We will walk as Jesus walked. How did Jesus walk? That's what we sort of want to explore together in the Gospel of Mark. How is it that Jesus walked? Um, in the Gospel of Mark, we start to see many things as, as Mark slowly um, through one story and the next and the next and the next starts to answer this question, who is this Jesus? Of course, Jesus already knows. In um, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, we read this. One day as Jesus was walking. Now, Mark very, very explicitly, you know, has Jesus walking here, walking there, going from this town, going from that town. He walks to this situation. He walks to that situation. He walks and he walks and he walks and his life on earth is there for all of us to read about and to picture. But how did he walk? I want to suggest that the reason that each of the gospel writers focus in on Jesus' baptism is because there's a very, very important moment here. Just a few verses earlier in 10 and 11, we read this, and you've, you've read these, these verses before, but as Jesus come up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart, being torn open, literally, and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven. Jesus hears this voice. And I believe Jesus walks his remaining days on earth hearing this voice. You are my dearly loved son. And you bring me great joy. This told him, did it not, about who he was in heaven. Who was he? God's dearly loved son. How did God feel about him? Oh, he loved him. <laughs> and he, his son, brought the father great pleasure, great joy. I believe to walk on earth as we are known in heaven, we need to understand afresh how loved we are by the Father. We need to know that we are his child. We need to know that we, we bring him great joy. Um, Robert Murray McChain, a Scottish preacher, 1813 to 1843, said this, learn much of the Lord Jesus in terms of correcting your identity and who are you and how are you known in heaven. He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus for every look at yourself Take 10 looks at Jesus. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Know who you are in heaven. Know 
who you are in heaven. It will transform your walk on earth. We are learning to walk on earth as we are known in heaven. And it might feel to you that, ah, is this one of those getting to know the Father's heart for me kind of sermons (laughs) all year? Welcome to 2018. Yep, we're going to look at that. We're learning to walk on earth as we are known in heaven. It might take a bit, but let me give you this reassurance. This summer, as always, my summer doesn't feel complete until we've had a little bit of time at Sea Spray. This summer, as always, got to Sea Spray, a little bit of a town halfway from the 90-mile beach. Turn left, 45 miles of virgin sand, turn right, same. I always turn right. Most of the time I turn right, don't I? And, um, and it was fantastic. Went for my long, 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 long walk once more. Whole year feels so much better after I've had my walk. And you get to a point where there are no other footprints except yours. And you walk and you walk and you walk. And then suddenly you realize, um, I'm sunscreened and I'm hydrated, but I think that's about enough. I better turn back now. (laughs) And so you start walking back, but you realize you're a lot more tired than when you started out. (laughs) And I have discovered whilst walking that track back, the best way to do it, is to find my previous footprints because the sand under each of them is a little bit hardened and to walk in my footprints. That is actually quite easy because it's my pace, it's, it's, it's the distance that I would normally step and so forth. And so it's a very, very easy walk to walk back in your own footprints. The most natural walk for us is to walk in the footprints of Jesus. We can very, very easily persuade ourselves that Christian life is too hard. I try to be more like Jesus. I try to walk more like him. But, oh, you know what? I just can't quite get it right. It's unnatural. No, no, no. His very seed, his DNA is in you. It's the most natural thing you can do. We've just got to learn to walk that way. And I invite you, that's our journey for 2018. Maybe 19, I don't know, there's 16 chapters in Mark. Let's see, how, let's see how we do. But that's a little bit of our journey. We want to learn to walk as Jesus walked. We're going to open up the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at that together. And I hope that you discover afresh who you are in heaven so that you can walk more naturally on earth. What if you close your eyes? Let's pray. And, and I want you to sense a little bit of an invitation from the Lord himself this morning to come on that walk with him. Perhaps in your mind's eye, you can picture yourself on a stretch of sand that goes as far as the eye can see. It's a distant, hazy horizon, and you suspect that it goes on a whole lot further than what you can perceive from your limited viewpoint. And as you look ahead, you note to yourself that there's a set of But you also know that you have never been this way before. Now hear a still small voice within you say, 
but I have. Jesus has walked this journey. He has already laid out the way. And he is inviting you afresh, anew, to walk as he has walked. To step into his footprints. To learn from him, to lean on him. To come to know him and to come to know all that he knows about you. To learn to walk on earth as you were known in heaven. That's his invitation. Perhaps in this little visual, you can envisage yourself answering his invitation by simply taking that first step. your heart and your mind saying yes Lord teach me teach me oh thank you heavenly father that you know us better than we know ourselves you know our likes and our dislikes You know what we're capable of and what we're not. You, you have woven us together in the womb. Indeed, you knew us even before we were born. And this knowledge is far too much for us, but we pray that we would come to understand afresh this wonderful truth of having been grafted into your family, but having your very DNA now placed in our life so that truly we can say, we know you. We have your nature. Teach us to walk. We ask this in the lovely, wonderful, precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And all the Lord's people said, Amen.